You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, well, we are in the Psalm series uh, right now, and we're in message three of this. And I love, by the way, that every uh, July we get to rally around the Psalms and do a series on what they have to say. Uh, the Psalms are a, a wonderful um, book in our Bible, a, a collection of 150 songs and poems written mostly by uh, King David, but uh, some other folks as well contributed. It's a very unique book in the Bible, which is one of the reasons it's so fun to uh, get into. Uh, some uh, trivia for you, the shortest passage, the shortest chapter in your whole Bible is found in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 117. If you need a, a great uh, memory chapter, there it is. Boom. You'll have memorized the whole chapter of the Bible. It's like three verses. Uh, the longest chapter in your Bible is two chapters later, Psalm 119, uh, which be glad I'm not doing that this morning because we'd be here for hours and hours. But uh, right in the middle of the shortest and longest chapter is the exact middle. Did you notice the exact middle of your Bible is chapter 118 of the book of Psalms? So there it is. Uh, so that is uh, some random trivia that means nothing unless you're at a Christian party, but you can use it. Uh, it the Psalms is also the most read book in your Bible. Did you know this? Uh, so BibleGateway.com did a uh, survey of all the, their usage data, and they compiled a top 10 list of the most read books in the Bible. And the book of Psalms was number one, followed by Matthew and John and Romans and so on. Uh, Leviticus didn't make the cut. I don't know why. It's weird. But that is just how the cookie crumbles. And uh, the book of Psalms is probably so read uh, because it is this uniquely uh, user-friendly book, right? It, it's a book that doesn't require quite the sort of like rigor of study to get the meaning to jump out of the pages at you at, as, say, a Leviticus or a Numbers or those types of books. It's a book written by people who are just feeling things and experiencing God and pouring out their heart to God. It's a very um, emotive book. It's incredibly honest, right? Like just raw emotions are dealt with in the book of the Psalms. If David is super happy, he's going to write, I'm super happy today, God. And it's like, oh, okay, I know what that means, you know? Uh, if he's super mad, he's going to say, I want you to kill everybody who doesn't like me, you know? And and you get, it's just clear. It's like, okay, at least I know what that guy's feeling. It's, it's right there. It's an honest book, full of raw emotion. And yet, it's incredibly profound, isn't it? And, and it really is so theologically robust. Like, did you know uh, the book of Psalms is the reason we have a Protestant Reformation? Uh, Martin Luther was doing a Bible study on the book of Psalms, prepping for his congregation when God first started to open his eyes to the truth of the gospel. Like you wouldn't be in this room this morning had it not been for the work of Psalms in the life of Martin Luther. So uh, we're incredibly indebted this morning to uh, this particular work in our Bible. And in this morning, we are doing uh, Psalm 84. So that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in the text a lot. So if you would, make sure you have a Bible out or on or however that works. There's uh, Bibles under the seats if you need one uh, to look at. And Psalm, uh, Psalm 84 is rapidly becoming one of my favorite books in scripture. It is a quote, Psalm of the sons of Korah. That's what it says at the top of most of your Bibles. And uh, a little background 
on what that means. So Korah, if you'll remember, was a guy that we meet in Numbers 16. And he was a fellow who was uh, bothered by the fact that Moses had the status he had among Israel. And he kind of wanted to be the dude who was as important as Moses. So he got a crew of folks together and they caused a rebellion among the ranks in the people of Israel. And then God lovingly opened up the ground and swallowed them whole. Uh, So that's number 16, a charming little moment in your Bible. And these are the sons of Korah from whom we get this particular chapter. Which means uh, that in a lot of ways, the great, 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 great grandkids of Korah learned their lesson. Because this book is an incredibly humble psalm, an incredibly God-focused, God-hungry psalm. These are the people who gave us this particular psalm, the sons of Korah. It's also a pilgrim psalm, meaning it was written by somebody who was traveling from a place on their way to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God. Now, there's a whole section of the Psalms that we talked about last time I preached uh, called the Psalms of Ascent. And those are Psalms specifically written to be read on your way, on your pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God. And uh, this, this particular Psalm doesn't fall within that category of the Psalms of Ascent, but it is a Psalm about ascent because, uh, about ascent because this is what you would read as you were on your way to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, think of it kind of like uh, making a mixtape on, on the road. Like these were the jams of the Jews as they're heading to worship God. Uh, that's just what it is. So uh, it's a pilgrim psalm, and uh, that's Psalm 84. And, and what's interesting about this particular psalm is it's broken up into sort of three sections, uh, which makes it really easy for us to talk about and study this morning. Each section of this psalm is framed by a beatitude. Now, you know what I mean by beatitude, right? Uh, Jesus' beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, all of that. That expression, the blessed ours, are beatitudes. And there's three of them we find in this particular psalm, and it frames for us sort of the movement of what's happening here in the text. We see the first one in verse four. It says, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. That frames the first four verses. The next middle verses are framed by verse five. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And then the last part is framed by verse 12. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. So those are sort of the three pieces of the puzzle of this psalm. And as we work through the text this morning, we're gonna take the psalm in sections. We're gonna do it a little out of order. We're gonna look at section one and section three And we'll save that middle part uh, for the end. We'll address that at the end. But section one and three, the reason I want to take it like that is because those really sort of frame the content of this psalm. And they drive home the main point about what this particular writer is wanting to capture as he's writing this song of worship to God. And what he's trying to capture is this. And this is sort of the driving force of what we're going to be talking about this morning. The driving force is this, that, that a Christian is one who has an utter homesickness for God. If you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, it means that. It is a person who has a deep, profound homesickness for God. That's what we're gonna see in the psalm. Let's look at it together. Let's look at uh, verse one through four. I'll read it. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, 
faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. I just want you to have ears this morning listening for the language of longing because you're going to hear that language all throughout this psalm. Look at it here. The the psalmist is nearing Jerusalem and he's picturing it in his mind as he's going and he's thinking about how lovely the courts of the Lord are, how majestic the temple is. He's talking about the the altars of God. And I just want to pause here because this is a place where a lot of this side of the cross, people can kind of get it twisted and, and, and maybe, maybe look at a psalm like this and not resonate because we don't look to an infrastructure anymore uh, for where worship happens, right? We, that was uh, a sermon that we did in the discipleship series, that, that worship is something that takes place inside of us now. But in the Old Testament, you have to remember there is a fixed location. The location was Jerusalem. The temple of God in Jerusalem was the primary place where God said, I'm going to meet with my people. So when you read a psalm like this, you need to be reading language like temple, house of God, altars, courts of the Lord, and interpret that to mean the presence of God. Okay? So put those ears on as we work through the text because that's really what God's getting at here when he's, when he's putting language in here like temple and courts. He's talking about himself, his own presence. And, uh, and this is what he's trying to capture. Look at the, look at the sentiment when, when this writer is thinking about the courts of the Lord. My soul longs. And it almost is like he's groping for a better word. He's like, yes, uh, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. That phrase, sing for joy, in the Hebrew could maybe better be translated as cry out. That when this writer thinks about the living God, he's saying, everything in me, my, my heart, my soul, my flesh, they, they cry out. There's such an eager longing for the living God. I'm crying out to you. The language of longing is all through this text. Then he goes ahead and he imagines the birds of the air taking up their residence in the altars of God. And he marvels how this God who is so majestic and mighty, he calls him the Lord of hosts four times in this psalm, which is tantamount to saying the God of armies, of angels, right? That's, it's a military term to, to call God the Lord of hosts. He is the commander of hosts of armies. And he goes on to say, this commander of hosts of armies loves when little baby birds nest in his altar. There's this weird juxtaposition that's happening there. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of us like finding out that Alexander the Great loved to snuggle with kitties, you know? It's like that, that's super weird because like you, you demolish nation states and then you, you cuddle up next to a kitten and you rub your nose on it. That's, that's kind of the, the feel here. You are the Lord of hosts and you welcome little birdies to come lay, lay their eggs in your altars. You are a welcoming God. You are big and you're strong, but you're also inviting. You're also saying come. Come in. You're welcome. Everyone's welcome. 
That's what he's trying to capture here when he's using that language. And he ends it by acknowledging this, that as he's thinking about it, he, he decides that you know who the happiest people in the world must be? The happiest people in the world have got to be those people who get to actually dwell in the presence of God in the temple because those people can just worship God whenever they want and know that confidently they're in the presence of God. Wow. And he's marveling at this. Longing imagining, dreaming, thinking about. That's what's happening here. And really, I mean, this isn't foreign to us. This is what we do. When, we're, when we are anticipating something, when we are longing for something, this is how we handle that. We put our minds there. We look forward to it. We look forward to whatever it is. And we think on that. I remember, you know, we adopted our son Ben four months ago, but the process for us was four years. And we were actually matched with him for over, uh, over a year, almost a year and a half before we actually got to hold him in our arms. So you can imagine for us, the longing that was building up in us for us to just get to see our son. We'd get picture after picture of him at six months, nine months, a year, and we'd see him age and know we can't go there yet. There's still more things to be done. And there were many times when me and Kelly would just sit around and just think about the moment. Man, what's it gonna be like? Like, are we gonna go there? Is he gonna recognize us when we get to the orphanage? Because we sent pictures ahead of ourselves. Like, will he see that this is the face of the like of his dad, or will, they, will he not know who, it, will he be scared? Like we, we don't know, but we're so excited to put ourselves in that place and think about that moment. That's, that's what people who are anticipating something good do. We put our minds there and we meditate on it and we fantasize about what's coming and we enjoy it coming in the future. That is, that is what people do when we delight in something, isn't it? <clears throat> and that's, that's what the psalmist is doing all throughout this psalm. But he's gonna go even further than this like really emotive language that we've already hit. He's gonna go even further to describe his delight. And we see this at the end of the psalm. So let's jump from section one now down to the end, section three, and we're gonna be in verse 10 through 12. And it says this, it'll be on the screen for you. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O oh, Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So I have a family that lives in Wyoming along with the 12 other people that live there. And we, uh, we traveled when I was a kid every Christmas to go visit my cousins up that way. I got two cousins up there. And I was a little bit younger than them. them. They, they sort of, you know, I looked up to them a lot. I was that nine-year-old looking at that 12-year-old like, man, that guy's got it figured out, right? And uh, my, uh, I remember being in my older cousin's room when I was a kid. And this guy's super sharp. He's a doctor now, but even growing up, like always top of his class, always straight A's, got scholarships and, all, and medals and awards and all that. And I remember being in his room <laughs> when I was a kid and uh, there was this poster on the wall that was just sort of seared into my mind. I'd look at it all the time when I was there. And actually yesterday, I was curious if I could f find that poster online and I, I did because Google's amazing. And, and I, uh, I, I'll put it on the screen for you, but this was the poster I saw every Christmas when I showed up at my cousin's house. 
And uh, I don't know if you can read that up top, but it says this, justification for higher education. Charming. <clears throat> that, that is the 90s American dream, man, right there. That is it. Uh, you know, you've got your beachfront house. You've got your $600,000 cars right here. And I just remember looking at it and going, I finally know my purpose. That's it. There, there it was. I didn't know, and now I know. Uh, the reason I put it up there is, is because of this. Christianity looks at that poster and is thoroughly unimpressed. Thoroughly unimpressed. Why? Because a Christian is someone who knows that living the life of a king without delighting in the king is not life. That is not life. To have everything except Jesus is to have nothing. To have nothing except Jesus is to have everything. That is truth. That is reality. And so when a Christian sees that, what the world is holding out to us, the draw isn't there. The draw is not there because what we're saying here is there is nothing that you could set in front of me that would make me look to God and think you're not quite as good as that thing. There's, there's no job offer. There's no relationship or marriage. There's no rise up the corporate ladder. There's no experience that you and I could have that God is not saying, I trump that for my people. I am better. I am the satisfier. And one of the things it means to be a Christian is to affirm that and acknowledge that, that there is nothing better in this life than simply knowing God. And if when I say that, that sounds strange to your ears or foreign to you or uncomfortable or something that you would say, I haven't experienced that, that I just want to lovingly say to you this morning, there's a chance you might not actually be a Christian. And I, and I say that solemnly, but I say that sincerely. Christians are those who, when we look at God, we say, there's my treasure. There's my treasure and nothing else. Give me, a, give me one day in the presence of my God, over a thousand days in luxury. Give me one day with him because I promise he's better. What you need more than anything this morning, if that's you, and you're hearing that and going, I don't, I don't have that sentiment. What you need more than anything this morning is for God to awaken your spiritual taste buds to see that what I just said is actually true. Because it is true. But you see, God, God is not just better than everything the world offers. God is also better than everything God offers. Now, what do I mean by that? Because that, that almost sounds heretical, doesn't it? Let me, let me clarify for you what I mean by that. There are 10,000 gifts that are purchased for you and I in the gospel. That when you become a Christian, you have now forever. Forgiveness of sins. Sin no longer has its hand around your throat if you're a saint in here. The promise, 
that the wrath of God has been removed from you. That you no longer have to worry if if condemnation is coming your way. That you no longer have to fear hell. The promise that heaven awaits you when you die. The promise of a glorified body when Jesus returns that can worship Jesus and enjoy all the good things he's given you. The promise of a new heavens and a new earth where you can enjoy God forever. All of those things are yours. They're yours forever. But they are not the treasure of the gospel. There's something good. They're breathtakingly good. But the treasure of the gospel is not even those good things God has given you in the gospel. It is God himself that is the final treasure of the gospel. The punchline of Christianity is this. You get God forever. That's the punchline. And if that doesn't do anything for you, again, this is the time where we need to ask the good question, do you know him? Do you know him? Because I promise you, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you would affirm with the other saints in here, that is true. I could have all the world and not have Jesus and I I would feel like I have nothing. I could have heaven forever and if Jesus isn't there, I'll acknowledge I have nothing. Give me Jesus. He is everything. That is the cry of the Christian. This is a good test for us this morning, isn't it? It's a good thing for us to ask ourselves and meditate on. 1 Peter 3.18 puts it like this. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The gift of the gospel is God. And he wants to give you himself this morning. Take him. Take him. The gospel is about delight in God above all else. This psalm is showing us that. But the psalmist is also showing us one final thing here. And for that, we're going to go to that middle section of the text. It starts in verse 5. And here's what the psalmist is showing us. That that delight in God is nomadic. That delight in God is nomadic. It moves. What do I mean by that? Let's just read the text and we'll get into it. Verse five, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Get this picture. The worshiper is in transit to the temple in Jerusalem, right? They're on their way. And maybe it's a great distance. We don't know if it's near or far, but it's probably some distance. They're, they're saddled up and they're riding that way. It's probably not the easiest of conditions based on what some of the text right here is saying. It's probably a difficult journey, but that doesn't seem to be phasing our guy. It doesn't seem to be slowing him down. Why isn't it slowing him down? Well, the, the text is saying it here. It's because he realizes something. Now listen to this. He realizes that 
the real journey he's not on is not taking place primarily under his feet. The real journey he's on is taking place primarily in his heart. That's what it says right, right there. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. It is in our heart that the pilgrimage to God takes place. It's in our heart that God's presence dwells. It's inside our heart that we move closer and closer to the Lord. And that, if that's true, that profoundly changes everything about the way we experience this life. Well, what am I talking about? What does that mean? Well, the text is gonna tell us. Look at verse six. So he just said that in their hearts, the highways of Zion reside. And then he says this, verse six says, they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The, some translators believe that this word right there, baka, is referring to a type of tree or shrub that grows in like arid or really dry climates. So some translations would render the valley of baka something like the thirsty valley, right? The valley that has no water, which would be an appropriate translation. I think that would fit within this context. That may be true, but, but we also know that this word baka is derived from another word, which means to weep, okay? So just watch what happens here. If that is true, it makes this text really interesting because the text could maybe read something like this. As they go through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. But watch this, we're gonna put it together. Then he says, the early rain also covers it with pools. Again, here's a beautiful sort of play on words, turn of phrase moment that's happening here because the word pools in the original Hebrew could also be translated to be the word blessings. So let's just put the sentence together for a minute and let's see what comes out at us. This text could read something like this. As they go through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with blessings. What is the psalmist saying here? What is he getting at? That there is a way to be so fixed on God from your heart, so enamored with the person of Jesus that things like suffering and adversity and hardship no longer rob us of joy. For the Christian, the hardest things we experience in life are converted into something that we can actually, in the end, be grateful for. Do you see that? We are the people who, who look at the puddles of tears running down our face, and, and we say to ourselves, that reminds me of a fresh spring of water. We are those people who see suffering upside down. That's one of the things it means to be a Christian. I remember I was reading a book a while back called The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Probably many of you have read it in here. Corey and her sister Betsy were Dutch Christians who were arrested by the Nazis in World War II and put into Ravensbrück concentration camp. 
uh, because they were aiding and abetting Jews. So it's a true story. Corey wrote the book. It's her biography, and it's a wonderful book. Please get it and read it if you haven't read it. And one of the scenes that happens is their first arrival into Ravensbrück, and they get into their barracks with all these other women, and they're crammed really tight into this place. And it's just, the whole thing is a nightmare, as you can imagine. They're in a concentration camp. They get into these nasty barracks. There's no space to move hardly. Her and her sister Betsy finally get to lay down on their straw mat. And as they lay down, they start itching. And they're like, what's going on? Corey's like, I don't know. They look down at their mat, and their straw mat is covered with fleas. And so they're just getting bit up everywhere, laying there, agonizing. Corey looks over at her sister at some point, and she just says, how can we bear this? And, and her sister, who Corey remarks throughout the book, had so much more sweet faith than she did. She said, Corey, grab that Bible and, and, and read the verse that we read this morning together. I think God might have something for us there. You see, earlier in the story, they were able to smuggle a Bible into the concentration camp. So they have it in this room with them. Corey gets out the Bible. She opens it up and she was in, <clears throat> excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. And here's what it says. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. And Betsy looks at her and she says, Corey, that's the answer. What God's calling us to do right now is, is to thank God for things. Let's just start, Corey, let's just start thanking God for things here. And Corey's like the cynic in the book. And it's, it's actually pretty funny, some of these moments. And she's just like, what are you talking about? We are in a concentration camp, A. B, I'm crammed in this barrack with you. C, I'm covered in fleas. What do you want me to thank God about? She's like, Corey, just, just try, just try. And they're laying there and Betsy starts praying. She's like, God, thank you that, that uh, we were able to smuggle this Bible in. And Corey was like, okay, good point. Um, that was one. Yes, you got, okay, one. And, and Betsy's like, and God, thank you uh, that we weren't split up, that we were able to bunk together in the barracks. She's like, okay, yes, that's, that's true too. Thank you, God, for that, yes. And, and then Betsy's voice goes up as she's praying. She says, and God, thank you for the fleas. And Corey was just like, that's it. I've had it. You can't thank God for fleas. I get the Bible. The Bible's good. I get being together. That's good. Fleas are bad. Fleas are bad. Product of the fall. Bad things. <laughs> you can't thank God for something like that. Pause on that scene. Let's fast forward for a bit because they had that Bible in their room and they started doing a Bible study with the other ladies there. And whoever wanted to come could come. And each night they gathered around this little light and they read the scripture together. And it grew and grew in popularity and people were so hungry for the word that eventually pretty much this whole barrack was gathering around these, these two women reading the Christian scriptures to them. And, and people were getting saved and coming to know Jesus. And it was this beautiful thing that was happening. And the whole time that that was happening, not a single guard or supervisor ever came in their barracks. They never really understood why. They were just like, well, it's just the favor of God and we're grateful for it while it lasts. Well, at some point, Corey, in a later scene, she comes and she meets with Betsy outside of the, the uh, place and Betsy's waiting for, there, waiting for her there with just this big smile on her face. And she says, Corey, I found out why our barracks have never been disturbed. And she's like, why? She's like, well, I, last night we were knitting some socks and uh, for, for the guards, and, and we 
I had a size question about what size was right. And so we invited our supervisor in. And the supervisor came to the door, but she refused to come in. And we didn't know what was going on. So we asked the guards and the guards refused to come in too. And when we pressed the issue with them, they told us we're never coming in those barracks. They're infested with fleas. Corey, we're able to study God's word because of fleas. And, and do you see it? Do you see how this valley of suffering for these two women produced a beautiful fruit of righteousness? That God turned even this nightmare of a scene for them into a spring. The early rain covered it with pools of blessings for them. It's because they understood that their God is the Lord of all, sovereign over all, working all things for their good. The highways to Zion were hidden in their heart. A Christian, listen, is not somebody for whom everything in the world goes right. There are preachers out there that will tell you that. There is a whole group of theologians that are purporting that essentially what God wants to do with you in this life is make you healthy wealthy and wise and you just believe hard enough and you're going to get it and can I tell you something that is poison to the gospel that is poison a Christian is not someone who has it all a Christian is someone who when they lose it all they do not lose their joy in Jesus do you see that that is what it means to walk with God. That is what it means to be a Christian. And that's what the psalmist is getting at when he says something like, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. If the highway to God is hidden in your heart, nobody can take it from you. No circumstance can come in and remove it. You can face persecution. This church could collapse. We could even lose our own lives, but they can't steal the joy that we have in God because the highways to Zion are not out there. They are hidden within ourselves. The highways to Zion that we are on, heading to Jerusalem, they're in our hearts. That is what it means to be a follower of God. And that's what Paul meant in the New Testament when he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4. He said this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about their body being the jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Listen, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, yes, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. If the joy that you have for Jesus is hidden inside of you, no one can snatch that. If the road you're on to God is in your heart, no matter what terrible road you might be on in this life physically, you're never off the road to him inside. Do you see that? That's what the Bible's teaching here. Christians are those who are in Zion before they get to Zion. We are the people who are at the destination before we get to the destination. We're the people who are home with God before we've made it home to God. That is the Christian life. And if that's true, then here is the last sweet, great promise of the gospel for us this morning. And it's in verse 7. And it says this, 
they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Did you hear that promise? For everyone who treasures Jesus now, in this life, for everyone in whose heart are the highways to Zion, verse 7 is for you this morning. You make it to the end. You get to God in Zion. You will be delighting with God then if you're delighting in God now. That, that is how God preserves his saints to the end. That's how he does it, by producing in us a delighting in him now. And so this is the invitation. Will you leave this morning your lesser loves that are robbing you of giving your affections to Christ? Will you forsake those this morning and run to him? He is saying, I satisfy I am worthy to be delighted in and I never disappoint. Come to me. Has your heart been hard to that? Are you chasing so many other things? Leave them. Run to him. Are, are you the person who, who got into this Christian thing mostly because you didn't want to be singed at the end? And so for you, Christianity is mostly just escaping hell, but you've never seen that God is glorious and so satisfying and that that is the prize of the gospel, not not going to hell. If this is the first time for you to see that truly, today, come to him. I don't care if you've been in church your whole life. I don't care if you've been in this church your whole life. I don't care. God's invitation to you is come, enjoy me. Now, today, forsake all else and know that I am the fountain of living waters. Drink deep from me. Be satisfied in me. That's what he's offering us today. Trust in him and find yourself on the highway to Zion. I, I, this morning, we're going to have people over here by this back table, as we always do. And if that's you, if, if you've heard this and you're like, I, I want him and I haven't had him like that before, Pray, go over there and they're gonna pray for you. They'll pray with you. They'll hear your story and they'll intercede on your behalf and, and you can pray with them if that's helpful. Do that as we continue worship. As we start singing songs to God, that's a great time to head over there and ask for prayer. If, you just, if you're just eager for, for God to, to work this truth deeper down into you, they'd be happy to pray for you over there. Deal with God. Let's deal with God this morning and know that he's inviting us to delight in him right now. Now, let's pray. I'm going to give you a second to just meditate on that truth. I'm done talking. You, you just ask God to, to work in you, to help you believe, to help you enjoy him. Ask him to open up your eyes to something you're not seeing this morning. Ask him to give you a heart of repentance that really starts hating your sin and loving him. Ask him for those things. He wants to work this morning.
Holy Ghost. (laughs) Father, I am, I'm eager for you to save. I'm eager to see our church family be people who are marked by such a delight and longing for God that you can't help but see it in their faces, see it how they treat each other, see it how they love their wives and their husbands, see it how they pastor their kids, see it how they give, see it how they do all this. We want to be people who delight in you in that way, God. Would you do that in our hearts? We just can't produce it, God. Your spirit has to. Your spirit has to. So we invite you to move. We invite you to do what we can't. Glorify your name. As we worship you, as we sing these truths back to you, we just want to acknowledge, God, that it is true that one day with our God is better than a thousand days not in your presence. We would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of our God than dwell in the tents of wickedness because you are better. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That is who you are. And you are offering yourself to us this morning. God, help us to take you. Take you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.